Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. What did you do in 2020 to make a change for the better? Last year, companies were asked to be accountable and actionable about their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. The results have been mixed. As Derek Coleman of Creative Financial Staffing has written, Improving diversity at an organization does not happen overnight. It will take time and effort for companies to make progress and begin building a more diverse workplace. We've talked about diversity before on the program, but with workforces poised to make even more change in a post-pandemic world, I wanted to talk about specifically how a diverse workforce is good for both the culture and bottom line of an organization. And to do that, I've asked Derek Coleman to the show. Derek is the Managing Director for Creative Financial Staffing of Los Angeles, where he serves as the practice leader of GHJ's recruiting division. CFS specializes in the placement of accounting and finance professionals into temporary and permanent positions across a broad range of industries. Thank you so much, Derek, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk about this today because, as I mentioned, this is something that we've talked about in the program before, specifically with respect to accounting. But I wanted to talk about in a more broad sense, because I do think this is something that we're hearing more about. And I want to talk about kind of the, not just the challenges of having a more inclusive workforce, but also why it's important and how to make that happen. So I guess kind of to start, why don't you explain, I guess, to our audience today, Why don't you explain why diversity is important in the workforce? Because I think sometimes we get hung up on the notion of we need it. Why is it important? Well, I think it's uh, every initiative, how do I measure success? You know, and so I think as most firms are going to have to look at what's the ROI on our diversity initiatives. And so I think from my perspective, I think diverse, it's not even, it's proven fact that diverse teams are more productive and that diverse teams are more innovative and diverse teams are more profitable for an organization. And so I think that if you really think about the untapped potential within most organizations, there may be underrepresented groups that you've not even tapped into their innovative insights. They are not bringing their whole selves to work, and therefore you're not getting the best work product from that uh, segment of individuals. And if the numbers show that it's more profitable, and I'm thinking about this, you know, as a numbers girl, and I think a lot of my audience also, we're numbers people. If the research shows that the numbers are there to support diversity, why don't we see more of it in companies, do you think? I think it's the fear of the majority of folks that feel like I may be losing something Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we tackle this complex issue and try to change things. Things are going well for generally for the majority. If you look at the the, the numbers, the current landscape is, is generally right now with public accounting and private industry, the most common ethnicity among accountants is white, which mm-hmm. makes up about 64.5% of all accountants. Comparatively, there are 15.7% Asian ethnicity and 9.6% Hispanic or Latino and then 7.9% Black African-American. 
And so I think that it's when you have such a, a dominant workforce that have just, this is the way things have been, it's that uncomfortable change. And so I think that's what prevents progress is the fear of what that means. Right. And I think that the tax profession generally, whether it comes to technology or hiring, you know, we are very much a profession. And and when I say profession, I'm including, you know, accounting and law and the related tax pieces in that term, but we typically don't like change. So how do you make that happen then? How do you make that change happen? Well, I think a starting point would be, I think education is going to be key here. I think a starting point would be open dialogue about diversity, equity, inclusion to help break down the silos and communication barriers Mm -hmm. and really listen to your staff and how they feel. And I think that will help set the foundation for conversations in the future. And by improving the quality of the organization's everyday conversations, I think you'll develop a culture of increased openness, respect for differences and understanding. This, I think, could fuel better collaboration, more innovation and greater effectiveness. Because I just think that it's the the fear. Historically, it's been let's not discuss race or inclusion and all those things in in years past. And Mm -hmm. so now it's at the forefront and everyone's trying to scramble. What do we do? We're coming from a history where you historically don't even really talk about it. So I think it's that fear of what are we going to open up here? (laughs) When is it going to end? And so I think I think it starts with a conversation. And then after that then you can, the first step would be about discovery and kind of not setting an agenda or duplicating anyone's diversity initiatives, because I think every organization is going to be unique in their own world. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to become more aware of the types of diversity within and across groups and in the context of which DEI plays out for individuals, teams, and organizations, and the organization as a whole. Right. And, and when companies make these decisions, so if they, you know, they look around and they say, you know, we realize that maybe our client base doesn't look like us, right? And we want, we want to, we want more representation because there is an advantage. Actually, Eric Pierre and I talked about this. Like there's an advantage, whether you're a young professional coming up or a potential client, to being able to look at a wide range of people and finding someone that looks like you. And I I say that as a female tax attorney, like I want to see women in the profession. I think that we are at a place where we want to see people that look like us. It's a mosaic, right? America is a mosaic. So when you make the decision that we want more diverse talent in in the workplace, how do you go out and get that? I know that this is something that a lot of companies struggle with. So how do you make that happen? I think we have to go beyond our normal places and spaces. For example, if you're recruiting at top schools for talent, then that right there is a bias in of itself Mm -hmm. and prevent you from tapping into minorities at different colleges that are not considered top schools, if you will. And so I think that go uh, changing your recruitment strategy to include the demographics of minorities that you're looking for and go beyond what you're doing now is going to be an imperative. Because if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to keep getting the same results, Sure, if you will. So I think it starts from, you know, I think universities and the branding awareness that you're searching out a certain demographic of people that would help increase the amount coming into your organization. And for folks who aren't used to, you know, kind of going beyond the 
looking at the Ivies or saying top schools, but I have quotes, air quotes, if you could see me. How do you make those connections? Because I will say, I know that that is something that especially smaller companies struggle with because one of the things kind of going back to the, you know, you tend to look for people who look like you. I will admit that I have a bias towards people who went to my, uh, my schools, right? So Temple made, go Temple. You look for people often that you know, or in schools that you know, how do you reach out to schools that you might not know about? Or, you know, how do you make those connections? How do you say, I think we should look beyond Philadelphia, let's look, you know, to DC or Baltimore, like, how do you make those connections if you're a smaller company? Because bigger companies we know tend to have, you know, in-house recruiting organizations, right? They already have a plan. What if you don't have that plan? I think what you have to do is is if you have, I would first consult the folks internally if there's specific groups that we would like to increase and target. Because what better champion than someone internally mm-hmm. can that actually help you attract additional talent? But then I think if you if you have a recruitment strategy, if you're using search firms, for example, then you make that a criteria of the search process that you are hoping that they can basically recruit a diverse segment of people for your specific position. And then I think getting to know called different colleges in different areas. Now that in the remote virtual world, I think with getting rid of the geography bias, basically with the capabilities of working remotely, I think that that can help advance diversity initiatives because now you can actually search in different cities and different states and locate talent that you would otherwise, so you can go beyond your your local market and, and, and attract folks from different different cities, which I think has been extremely helpful from our recruitment perspective. We've been able to tap into areas where there's, say, for example, in our Houston office, there's there's more minorities in, that are in those colleges. And now that you don't have to relocate to LA, we've been able to attract more remote talent that are diverse because there's more diversity in the city of Houston. So that's kind of some of the some of the strategic outreach efforts that we've been that help facilitate our increase in diversity recruiting. And when you mentioned earlier about some of the the bias that might be present in looking in certain kinds of schools or certain kinds of geographic areas, how do you teach people to overcome that or how or can you? Like I, I do think that there's a lot of as you mentioned like things that might result in a bias that you don't even know are sure. biased to begin with, right? Like kind of going back to what we were talking about with schools, if if you're always, if you're saying, no, I'm looking at the very best, right? Like this is what you think is the very best. And you don't realize that there might be some bias built into that assumption. How do you frame that discussion differently? Like how do you reach out and acknowledge the bias, but then move beyond it? How does that happen? Well, I advise most of my clients to go through to have it a mandatory unconscious bias training annually. Okay. And I think that that will help because recruiting is only one part, but retention has a whole nother, is a whole nother animal in of itself. And so it's sort of, if you recruit, but you're not genuinely invested in increasing your DEI, you're only going to recruit to lose that talent to another firm. And so I think that you have to educate managers and leadership in that the mini me phenomenon of I want someone that is like me. And, and generally that's what's going to create 
the same old, same old is if you mm-hmm. are only looking to grow and looking for to recruit people that look like you. And if you're only going to mentor those folks that look like you, that you see in yourself, oh, that person reminds me of myself, and you're not reaching out to your minority or diverse candidates, then you're just going to simply, they're going to feel ostracized. And most candidates, minority candidates leave for lack of equitable treatment and lack of inclusion. And so I think that recruiting is like step one, but retention is a strong step two. <laughs> oh, and I, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the things that we talk about a lot, and actually I've written a piece about this and we've talked about this a lot, is when you look at the numbers, and I actually talked about this with Catherine Kaminsky at PwC, when you look at the numbers coming out of law schools and business schools in tax and accounting in particular, the numbers are actually more equitable than you might think, right? For not just for gender, but for race in terms of graduation rates and and that sort of thing coming out of those schools. I mean, not, I'm not suggesting that it's it's equitable, but I'm saying it's more equitable than I think we would guess. Because when you look at who is graduating and then you look at who is managing, those numbers are not nearly the same, right? So for gender, for example, women make up about 50% of, of law firm graduates, but they're only about 20% of management. And I think right. that you see those same kinds of numbers when you look at Asian American, Black, Latino, you see this kind of, I think, across the board, right? So I think that that piece that you're mentioning is is something that we're not talking about enough. Like, what do you do at the company if you get people in the door? How do you get them to stay? And I know you mentioned having the entire company do a, a workshop or attend um, a seminar. Part. Yeah, some kind of knowledge building on those things. But one of the things that you just mentioned a few minutes ago is something that I think gets missed a lot, this idea of mentorship. Because I, when I interviewed, I believe it was Kate Barton um, at EY, she said that when they were talking about partner, someone asked her if she was up for partner and she said like she thought she was because right. they hadn't talked about it. And so we had talked about the importance of having a mentor um, and also a sponsor. How do you either, and you can answer this question either as a job seeker or as the company person, how do you encourage these kinds of relationships early on? Like if somebody, because we've seen that having a mentor or a sponsor not only keeps you out the company, but it also helps you move into those management positions, right? Which then would, if you, if you think about how that would then build on to the next generation, then that would continue to increase the diversity in your workforce because then you have those people who can help people move up. But how do you take those first steps? Thanks for that. That's a great question. And one of the things I think it starts, DEI commitment starts with the leadership of the company. Mm-hmm. And I think it because they set the tone, especially with the CEO or managing partner. And so it starts with them, but then they have to drive that throughout leadership and management. And so when it comes to mentorship and when it comes to sponsors, that has to be a a part of the DEI strategy to assign mentors, to assign uh, sponsors to a diverse, underrepresented talent within your organization. Because what happens is if you don't know what your future looks like, and perhaps there's no one that looks like you that's in a senior leadership position, then you're kind of like, well, what does this mean? Is this just a job for me? Mm -hmm. Or do I have a career here that I can move up the ladder? And so 
when that's radio silent about your future, you're going to leave because no one is taking you under their wings and, and, and mentored you. You have no sponsor that's speaking on your behalf behind closed doors, ensuring that you have uh, growth potential within the organization. And so I think that that does occur, but not for the underrepresented talent within organizations. And so there is no one that says, here's your, here's how we're going to chart your uh, success and your career development here. Here's what it should look like long term. And that comes from mentors and sponsors. And so with, with a lack of mentorship and sponsorship, you will not retain underrepresented talent. They will just leave once they realize that there's no one helping chart the course for them. Right. And so therefore, you, if it's silent, it means that it will not happen. And when you talk about silence, one of the other, I think, pieces that sometimes companies struggle with is this idea of, you know, being an ally or being supportive once the employee is in place. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we talk about being an ally, but one of the things that I've heard, and I've heard this from all kinds of underrepresented persons, whether it's women or people of color, like, there's this idea that once you're inside the group, you become the representative. So like you kind of feel like it's your job now to educate people when it should be the company's responsibility to do that. You know, how do you flip that script if you are the employee? If management's always coming to you and saying, we'd like for you to plan, you know, Women's History Month, or we'd like for you to plan Black History Month. And you don't want to do that because that's not your job, right? So right. how, how do you have that discussion with management and say, I'm not the learning piece here, right? Like you need to do this differently. How do you have those discussions? Well, I think that that's where the open dialogue, I think people have to feel that they're in a safe space. Mm-hmm. And so I always recommend that having the conversations, opening up dialogue to break down the silos and to just break down the fear of being able to voice your opinion. One of the ways that at GHJ we've done that is we, we've created employee resource groups. We call them a BIPOC cohort, and we also have a women's empowerment cohort. And so these are safe spaces where there's for everyone from partners to managers. And so we, and everyone's invited, not just people of color, but everyone from the firm is invited. And it's a safe space and you, everyone can speak, you know, freely mm-hmm. and it's actually not recorded, but Everyone's present from partners and senior leadership all the way throughout the organization. And I think that it helps facilitate people's or break down everyone's fear that I feel this way, but not everybody. And so I think others, it inspires others to step up and speak up. And so I think that that open dialogue, when you're kind of thinking about DEI within your organization, I think forming an employee resource group is just It's just been empowering our women's empowerment cohort, as well as our BIPOC cohort. We've just, we've all learned so much about each other and it's helped shape policies and procedures within our organization. Uh, So I think that that's one way to help a group, help the whole group together is like, and it's not just people of color, but it's everyone that finds that this is an important work that should be discussed. And so I would highly recommend uh, forming internal uh, employee resource groups. And do you have any, and you may not, but do you have any suggestions for resources for companies who are listening and they're thinking, you know what, these are some really great ideas, like having those resource groups, but those organizations, 
how do we start? Because if you've never done it before, you know, there's <laughs> how do you know, you know, how to get started? Do you have any suggestions for where folks could look to get started? It took a lot of research. We once we formed a cohort for like the BIPOC cohort, Black Indigenous People of Color cohort. We actually did a lot of research and it sort of was like step one was open-ended conversations. And then based on the outcomes of those conversations is how we came up with the strategy of where we needed to focus. Because I think sometimes you can look for like to mirror someone else's DEI initiatives. And really every company has a different culture. Right. Open-ended conversations will help frame and build a strategy. And so that you can come up with what's what things we need to tackle, what are the most important, and then you can sort of just keep going up. But I think we we personally, we did, you know, it was great internally at GHJ. We actually had a women's empowerment employee resource group that was already in place. So we took some of that knowledge and was able to create uh, the BIPOC cohorts. So I think it takes some research. I don't really have, I think we all did our individual research, came mm-hmm. to the table started the conversations and that helped navigate our agenda uh, forward. And we're kind of going back to the, one of the things we talked about, the, you know, you talked about how sometimes people are scared of change. What if you're in a situation where you want change, but you're scared of how to make that happen. And one of the things that I've heard from some folks in the profession is this notion that they're scared of reaching out because they're worried that they might do it wrong or it might feel patronizing. Like if they want to be more inclusive in the company in a public way, how to do that without being, again, patronizing or what if you make a misstep or what if you name the group wrong? Do you have any tips for folks who might be fearful for like coming from a good place, not fearful because they don't necessarily want change, but they're not sure how to effectuate the change. Right. And I think everyone has a different journey and perspective. And I think a lot of people come from good. So I think most folks are coming from a good place based on their belief, their own personal belief systems. Mm -hmm. And where, where I think we're going to, we have to have difficult conversations and agree that we may not all have the same viewpoint and perspectives. True. And that we're more than likely going to make some mistakes and that's okay. But it's sort of like, no, that's why we try to create a safe space. So you can actually have a viewpoint and perspective that's different than mine and that not be an issue. And so I think that it's creating that open dialogue and sometimes one-on-one conversations with someone that doesn't look like you are, are great because it just gives you insight into everyone's how we're different, but we all want to see things develop, but it's not sure how to do it. So even on the other end, there's some that have a fear. If I say the wrong thing during this meeting, mm-hmm. I don't want to offend someone. And so I think what what's happening is that everyone is fearful of a mistake, a miscommunication, uh, saying the wrong thing. But I think we have to understand on every meeting, we start our meeting with this is a safe space. No one is here to offend anyone. If you're offended, that's not the intention. Everyone is just voicing their own personal opinion. And so we repeat that just on every meeting, just so that everyone sort of can understand that it's okay to have your perspective and viewpoint. That's what diversity is all about. But we're here to help educate so that 
maybe, just maybe with the facts about uh, the minorities and their lack of opportunities so that you can maybe see it'll, things a little bit differently. Right. You know, so it's kind of, it's kind of, a, we're using it as an educational tool, our cohorts, and we publish educational information, factual information, so that things most have never even heard of or thought of. And so I think conversations, education, and building that comfort that folks can speak freely. And I think that will help navigate any company forward. And just kind of as a, I guess, wrapping things up and and uh, kind of bringing it full circle, you mentioned earlier about remote work and and how that's changing recruiting. And I think it's also changing the way that our workforce looks and, and acts. What do you think kind of is the next step? What do you think things are going to look like, you know, as we come out of the pandemic? Do you expect there to be more diversity and, you know, and inclusive campaigns and big companies? Do you, do you think that this is something that may get overshadowed as the pandemic, as we come out of this? Like, where do you see this push, this DEI that we're hearing a lot about? Do you think it's going to continue to grow and expand? Um, like, where do you see things going? I think it will definitely grow and expand. I think that the diversity gap is going to close and it's, it's going to narrow. And I think that it can't be a check the box, you know, initiative. It mm-hmm. really, companies have to live it. And I think the next generation of leaders that are coming up through organizations have a different mindset, a different perspective on diversity, much more inclusive. And so we're kind of at that, you know, the older, the baby boomers that are, you know, maybe retiring out and the other groups are much more open and, and think a little bit differently. And mm-hmm. so I think that we are in a very exciting, I'm very hopeful. I can't prognosticate where we would be uh, a year from now, two years from now, but I think the push for diversity and closing this gap and narrowing it uh, will definitely continue on full steam ahead. And most companies are probably going to move to, you know, their service providers, be it law firm. We've already seen companies like Coca-Cola do that, where they they ensure, they want to ensure that on their engagement that they have people of color. Uh, and so I think you'll probably start to see more companies ensuring that they have service providers that are as diverse as their companies are. Let's hope so. So thank you so much for being on the show today. If you wanted to be found and people wanted to find you either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? I would send them to our website, www.ghjadvisors.com or www.cfstaffing.com. We're listed on both websites. Wonderful. And I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you again for being here. This is terrific. Thank you so much. Pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe on your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.